Hey there. Thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. If you like what you hear, we'd love if you subscribe to or followed the show in your favorite podcast app. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you can leave a rating or review while you're at it, we would really appreciate it. It helps a lot. And telling your friends about the show helps too. Thanks. Now, here's today's show. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Three years ago, COVID-19 upended life as we knew it. Where does the pandemic stand now? It's Monday, March 13th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Kaliani Saxena. Today on the show, we discuss what life looks like three years into the pandemic. And we dance along to some of the educational bops from Schoolhouse Rock, which turns 50 this year. But first, let's turn our attention to the turmoil in the U.S. financial system. It's been a rough few days in the banking business as two major banks collapsed. The crisis began with Silicon Valley Bank, once a powerful tech investor. On Friday, SVB found itself unable to make good on client withdrawals and failed. Two days later, regulators shut down New York-based Signature Bank, which was widely used in cryptocurrency. While the U.S. government has said people with deposits in those banks will be able to access their money, investors in the banking sector are spooked. These are some of the largest bank failures in U.S. history, not seen since the collapse of Washington Mutual in 2008. And after the 2008 financial crisis, a number of safety measures were put in place to ensure that widespread collapse wouldn't happen again. So how did we get here? And what happens next? Robin Young called up Catherine Judge, Columbia law professor and expert on financial regulation, to help answer those questions. And let's talk about guardrails here, because we know the Dodd-Frank Act, which came out of the 2008 financial crisis, had requirements uh, for banks. Then in 2018, then President Trump pushed for undoing parts. Uh, President Biden pointed to that today. We should say some Democrats joined in what ultimately became a rollback, uh, exempting some smaller banks from some oversight measures and the requirements about how much money they needed to have in reserve for crises like this. So was that rollback of Dodd-Frank a factor in these bank failures? It was certainly not. A, it was certainly a factor. It was not the only factor, but but very significantly a lot of the changes came for banks that were above $50 billion, but below $250 billion. And both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature were right in that sweet spot. And a lot of Democrats, certainly not all, but a lot of Democrats recognized that there were reasons to impose more onerous regulatory burdens on those, those large banks. They're not the globally systemically significant banks, but they are large enough to pose systemic risks and they should have been regulated accordingly. Yeah. Well, uh, what were some of the problems in your mind? I mean, the criticism we're hearing is that these banks didn't diversify. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the story is the most classic banker story you could imagine, where banks hold long-dated assets, and that exposes them to interest rate risk. So when interest rates go up, even if you have safe assets like treasuries, their value goes down. And it looks like for these banks, they were holding a bunch of long-dated assets that had a lot of interest rate risks. They had not adequately hedged 
They had a lot of uninsured depositors, so it was a more fragile setting, and, you know, eventually it, it came to bite. Now, let's just, you know, underscore that. They had too many Treasury bonds that were impacted by these rising interest rates, so as the rates went up, the bond value went down. As they tried to sell off those bonds, you know, depositors in the bank started to hear about it, and, you know, it triggers a run. But we also hear those depositors, the people who deposited their money in the bank, like to do their payrolls and things. There were too many startup tech companies. And then a real challenge here was just the size of the deposits, how quickly Silicon Valley Bank had grown, and that it hadn't adequately managed the risk. So there were a bunch of red flags here. The bank grew very, very quickly because a lot of money threw money, a lot of people threw money at VCs, and that flowed into startups. Venture capitalists, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that happened. Um, and a lot of that then ended up getting parked at Silicon Valley Bank. And they could have made different choices. They could have reduced how attractive those deposits were to discourage people from parking money there. And there's a lot of tools that banks can use to hedge their exposures to interest rate risk. And it looks like they were not adequately hedged. Well, we'll talk about, you know, the Federal Reserve uh, oversaw SVB along with California State Regulator. Yes, some guardrails were removed, you know, having cash on hand for a crisis, but w- weren't there other ways to spot what was happening there? Yeah, it does look like there were a number of red flags. Um, one was the rapid growth. Another big red flag was a dramatic increase in reliance on another government-backed source of liquidity known as the Federal Home Loan Bank System. One of the things that happened in the 1980s when the SNL crisis, it happened again with the banks that failed in 2007 and 2008, is that they turned to the federal home loan banks because it was harder for them to get market-based sources of financing. SCB hadn't borrowed any money from the federal home loan bank of San Francisco at year in 2021, and it was its biggest borrower by year in 2022. And that's certainly the type of flag that ought to have regulators looking very closely to understand, well, what's going on here that they're suddenly so reliant on this government-backed source of financing? Right, right. Um, uh, Biden said today he'll call on Congress to strengthen rules for banks. Uh, is that one? Yes. So government should certainly uh, strengthen the rules on banks. Uh, but that's the longer-term project, right? So what we're seeing right now is regulators did the right thing. They're trying to stabilize the situation. And there's more work to be done on that front. But longer term, this suggests that we need much more stringent regulatory regimes in place. And we also have to figure out, is the supervisory system adequate? Yeah. And keep an eye on if a bank is borrowing a lot of money from an agency for mortgages, and maybe that's not where the money's going. Uh, Catherine Judge, yeah, professor of law at Columbia Law School, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, it's been three years since the coronavirus pandemic first began. Millions of people around the world have died, and the virus continues to spread. But many people, including those in the government, are determined to turn the page on the pandemic. Robin discusses what the new normal looks like three years into COVID-19 with Dr. Lena Wen. That's after the break.
Well, we hit a pandemic milestone over the weekend, though you may not have felt it. Saturday marked the third year of the global coronavirus pandemic. The lockdowns that followed changed our world. COVID-19 changed and took lives. In the U.S. alone, more than 1.1 million people died from COVID-19. People are still catching it. They're still dying from it, though at much slower rates. Two months from now, President Biden will declare the national and public health emergencies over, but of course they won't be, for the people still living with the effects of long COVID. Let's get an overview with Dr. Lena Wen, who joins us by Skype. She's a professor at George Washington University School of Public Health. She's been our guide over the past several years. In fact, Dr. Wen, I'm thinking you had a child in the beginning of COVID who must be a toddler now. That's right. My daughter, Isabel, actually turns three in early April, in just about two weeks. That's how I've been measuring time. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, a whole life during pandemic. What do you think about what's going on right now? No third-year speech from Biden on the weekend. There's been a—hasn't been a White House COVID briefing in months. Your thoughts on messaging right now? Well, I think that this was probably intentional because we are now living with COVID in a very different way than we have been, um, um, definitely than we were in 2020 and in 2021. We are now addressing COVID as an endemic disease, as a disease that's with us. Mm. Now, just because the state of emergency around COVID is ending doesn't mean that COVID is over. And it does not mean that COVID is somehow less important because there are many other diseases that are very important important that we don't declare emergencies around. For example, cancer or heart disease, the number two and number one killers right. in the United States. I mean, these are also really important illnesses. And so I think we're now at a point where we have to live with COVID while also specifically focusing on the most vulnerable individuals who are still vulnerable to severe outcomes from COVID. Yeah, there was just an outbreak at a nursing home in the Massachusetts area and several uh, elderly people died. What is your sense of how many people are contracting the virus now? How sick are they getting? because the public health dashboards with those stats are now shutting down. That's right. I don't think we have a good sense of the um, infection rate from COVID, uh, in part because of the lack of um, of, of public health efforts towards uh, towards surveillance, and also because of the increase in home testing that's not being reported. But I think we do know that the rates of individuals who are getting severely ill is far lower than before, thanks to the vaccines. I mean, people who have not gotten the updated bivalent booster, especially if they are older individuals with chronic medical conditions should really do so. The boosters really do work in reducing your likelihood for severe outcomes. Everybody should have a plan for what happens if they do get COVID. If you're older, again, with chronic medical issues, you should know if you're eligible for Paxlovid, the antiviral treatment, and how to get it. And I think a lot more attention needs to be paid to developing better vaccines, including ideally nasal vaccines that can reduce transmission and to better treatments because they are still vulnerable people who cannot take Paxlovid and who therefore are still really left in the dark while a lot of people have gotten back to normal. Right. Look, uh, like all health spokespeople, you've suffered some slings and arrows in the last three years. Uh, Early on, you were called authoritarian when you said on CNN, we need to start looking at the choice to remain unvaccinated the same way we look at driving while intoxicated. You can do it, but you shouldn't go out in public. Uh, later you were called too lenient when you agreed uh, with CDC findings that fully vaccinated people could return to near normal. There was a move to cancel you from a convention. You've now been calling for a reset on public health policy. How do we address what seems like a huge problem? People don't trust, a lot of it because of lies that were spread, but people don't trust health officials. 
That's right. I think we do have to point out that those individuals who are intentionally spreading misinformation and disinformation, that needs that needs to be called out. But at the same time, we do need a reset for how we think about public health policy. We need to convey that change happens, that there is an evolution that happens over time, that are the same policies that we may have put into place in 2020 are not the right ones now, given the fact that Omicron is a milder variant, given that the population that has immunity is much higher and so forth. And I also think that we need to really discuss how public health policy is complicated, that there are by definition trade-offs because public health is about weighing individual liberty versus communal good. And so I wrote a piece for the Washington post about how the mantra follow the science is a good start, but it's not enough because we also have to talk about values. And actually, I think part of the erosion of trust is needs to be addressed by not trying to simplify complex decision, but actually leading into and explaining that complexity, yeah. because it's the complexity that we all have been living through. We only have a few seconds here. So a simple question. Do you still wear a mask? I wear a mask in crowded indoor settings, and I certainly would wear a mask around individuals who ask that I wear a mask around them, because my goal is to protect the most vulnerable around us. Dr. Lena Wen, professor at George Washington University School of Public Health and our guide for the last three years, and we thank you for that. Dr. Wen, thanks. Thank you, Robin. Coming up. Hey, do you know about the USA? Do you know about the government? Can you tell me about the Constitution? Hey, learn about the USA. You may recognize that earworm from Schoolhouse Rock, the children's music educational program that made its way onto television screens in 1973. The program turns 50 this year, and Scott Tong reflects on its importance with Paul Ringel, history professor at High Point University in North Carolina. That's after the break. I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's Ah, 50 years ago, Schoolhouse Rock premiered on American television. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee, but I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill. For the uninitiated, these were three-minute animated songs on Saturday morning in between the cartoons of, say, Wile E. Coyote or Yosemite Sam, at least in my house. And they taught a generation of us grammar, history, math, civics, as in how a bill becomes a law. Well, let's talk about the phenomenon of Schoolhouse Rock, what went so right and perhaps what went less right, with Paul Ringel. He's a history professor at High Point University in North Carolina. Paul, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me, Scott. <laughs> yeah, great to have you. So, so tell us the origin story. Uh, Schoolhouse Rock, I gather, started with a father, an advertising executive, concerned that his son was struggling with math. Yeah, so David hmm. McCall was a big-time advertiser in New York, and his son was struggling with his math homework, and yet his son could sing every word of every Rolling Stones song at the time. <laughs> and so he kind of picked up on this idea that maybe music was the way to go to try to teach him the math that he wasn't getting. Well, let's take a listen to the first episode on multiplication. It's three is a magic number. The past and the present and the future, faith and hope and charity, 
The heart and the brain and the body give you three as a magic number. As we listen to this, tell us, what was the state of American television at the time that was a good moment for Schoolhouse Rock to come in? Well, we're kind of in the heyday of Saturday morning children's television, and that doesn't really exist anymore, but it sounds like you had the same experience that I did. Oh, boy. Growing mm-hmm. up, you know, getting up at 8 o'clock in the morning and the cartoons would be on till noon. Yeah. While the cartoons were thriving, there was also a kind of a backlash against them, against the violence of the cartoons, about the commercials that were running in between the cartoons. And there was a lot of pressure, especially coming from a grassroots organization called Action for Children's Television, about trying to include more educational content on Saturday mornings. And so for ABC, it was great because this was exactly what they needed. There was a threat to have the FCC step in and start regulating Saturday morning television. So they used this as a way to try to jump in and regulate themselves before the federal government actually did anything. The great thing about so many of these songs is they're a kick for the grown-ups, too. And the original writer of the songs, uh, the musician Bob Duro, talked about not oversimplifying for kids uh, in a 1996 interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. And here he is talking about teaming up with famous musicians to make Conjunction Junction. So I, I went home and, uh, and figured out it was sort of a uh, railroad song hooking up things like the railroad cars. And I made the song and uh, we went out to Hollywood to record it and Dave Frischberg had just written his first... Uh, song for America Rock uh, at the same time, I'm Just a Bill. So we had a super session in L.A. with Jack Sheldon singing those two songs and me conducting the band and Frischberg playing piano. And we had an all-star jazz band in Hollywood playing Conjunction Junction and I'm Just a Bill. (laughs) Very exciting. And phrases and clauses Conjunction, junction How's that function? I got three favorite cars That get most of my job done Conjunction, junction What's their function? I got and, button, or They'll get you pretty far And, that's an additive Like this and that But, that's sort of the opposite Not this, but that And then there's or, O-R when you have a choice like this or that. And button off, get you pretty far. Well, my favorite part is the backup singers in that, and I did not know what a high-level musical production it was. Uh, as a historian, how do you think about the impact Schoolhouse Rock had on civic education? Well, I think in some ways it's one of the most successful educational projects we've ever seen in the United States. It's just incalculable. Millions of people have learned everything from what a conjunction is to what the nervous system is to the mm-hmm. preamble to the Constitution from these songs. And I, I, I just find myself hard-pressed to think of anything that's been a more successful educational project outside of schools. So the third season of Schoolhouse Rock was in 1976, the year of the Bicentennial Celebrations. And a lot of these history songs came out in Schoolhouse Rock. And one of the episodes was called Elbow Room, about the concept of manifest destiny. 
Right. One thing you will discover when you get next to one another is everybody needs some elbow room, elbow room. Now that, of course, was the elbow room from the perspective of the European colonists. What does that tell you about how Americans kind of talked to themselves about history in the 70s? Well, I'm not sure how representative it is, actually, because the 70s is this moment, especially on college campuses, where you're getting this explosion of black studies and gender studies, and there's a real change Mm. in the way that history is being taught. But Schoolhouse Rock was not at all hooked up on that. These guys who were doing, and it was almost all guys, who were doing the songs were not historians. They were musicians that were using textbooks to learn their history. And the grammar and the math is terrific because that's really factual. Once we start getting into interpretation, it's even a little bit out of date for the 1970s. It sounds more like the way they were teaching history in the 1950s. Oh, wow. And any other history song come to mind as you talk about it? Yeah, Great American Melting Pot, about all the different immigrants coming in from France and Italy and Poland and even small places like Armenia. But when you look at Lady Liberty, she has her recipe book for the Great American Melting Pot, and Africa is listed as a country rather than as a continent. So Uh, we get Poland, (laughs) Armenia, Africa. So yeah, there are some problems we really need to address and, and see if maybe we can do it better and in a, a new version. Well, Schoolhouse Rock kept trying to come back over the years. About five years ago, there was a short-lived revival with new episodes on the planet and climate change. We don't need thermometers to bring you this early warning so we can all fight global warming. Global warming is caused by gases, mostly one called CO2. It comes from that technology that makes life so good for you. If you, Paul, could bring Schoolhouse Rock back, wave your magic wand, what would you tell? Well, I would want to do Schoolhouse Rock as a historian. I would want to do two things. One, I'd want it to be more representative. I mean, there's no mention of race at all in the history episodes. And so I think we'd need to be more representative of the wide range of people who actually live in this country. And then the second thing I'd want to do is really teach kids more about how change actually happens. There's a an episode on women's suffrage called Suffer Until Suffrage. And there's a line where they say they marched in lines and carried signs until the law was passed. They mean the, the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, but they kind of overlooked the idea that it took 70 years for women to get the right to vote. So change doesn't happen that quickly, and I'd love to be able to do episodes that showed kids, you know, here's the process of how change actually happens so that they can go out and make the change that they want to see in their own future. Well, as we think about a song to go out on, uh, I, I was asked by one of our producers what my favorite one is, you know, as a child of the 70s. I, I think it might be the verb one. When I hit, I need an object. When I see, I see the object. Do you see that first ball? If you can see it, then put the ball on the fence, man. Go ahead on. Yeah, all right. What? Ready? It's going. It's going. It's going. I get my thing in action. That's To work, to play, to live, to love. 
<laughs> okay. Sorry, Shattered Glass Enterprises. But what is yours? I think mine's Interjection. I love the part about the guy running the wrong way and scoring for the other team. The game was tied at seven on When Franklin found he had the ball He made a connection in the other direction And the crowd started shouting out Interjections Ah, oh, you threw the wrong way! Darn, you just lost the game! Hooray, I'm for the other team! That's the one that always stuck in my head. I had no idea what an interjection was, but I certainly know it now because of Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah. Hey, I'm from the other team. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh, we've been talking to Paul Ringle, history professor at High Point University in North Carolina, and we've been talking about 50 years of Schoolhouse Rock. Paul, thanks so much for the time. Scott, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey! This podcast comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. As always, there's so much more to read and listen to at our website, hereandnow.org. New today, John Horn of The LAist breaks down the biggest moments of the Oscars last night. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Lynn Menegon, and Shirley Jihad. Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, and Peter O'Dowd edited today's show. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Caleb Green. Theme music by Max, Mike Moschetto, and Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow.